Hi, my name is Luke McLaughlin. Uh, me and my family have been coming here for the last five years. Um, today I'm going to re be reading the scripture. Um, it's in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 4 in the CBS translation. Let's hear the word of God. The Lord said to Abram, go from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the people on the earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went, and the Lord had told him. And Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. This is the word of the, word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, so you may have noticed, but uh, Dave's not here, so you're stuck with me. Um, <clears throat> unfortunately, a little bit of false advertising last week. If you were here, he really pumped this up, and uh, he must have needed that sabbatical worse than we thought, because I, I hope to not disappoint. So anyways, uh, today I have the task of introducing our mission month. We've got four different church planters coming over the next four weeks. Uh, some of them have planted churches, some of them are in the process of planting churches, and some of them are planning to plant churches. I, on the other hand, have not planted a church, so I will not be talking about that. But what I do hope to do is kind of set the stage for those guys, um, <clears throat> because we don't typically do these one-off kind of topical messages. And so what we really don't want to see happen is for you to, to excuse away what those guys say, or, or you might be tempted to think, oh, they're just cherry-picking these these scriptures for their weeks based on their pet project or whatever. And so, or that, you know, church and mission just isn't for you or that Dave or Dave or the elders or whoever we throw up here is just over the top with this stuff or, or that the Great Commission, you know, it's, it's one verse. It's not, it doesn't really apply to me. There's a lot of verses in the Bible. Um, but I'm here today, I guess, to tell you that's not the case. It's, it's everywhere. It's all of it. And so to highlight that this morning, I'm feeling ambitious, and we're going to sprint through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And I brought my big Bible today <laughs> just to remind you how daunting this is. This is in German, so we're not going to actually go through it. <laughs> well, this is a big family Bible from like the 1800s that, that came over from Germany with my family. So, But anyways... Um, now I've got to find my spot. I can go get the Bible and throw out my back. <laughs> yeah, so what I want to do is I just want you to see that from the beginning of the time to the end of time that God is writing an epic story and that we all get to be a part of it. That's, that's the first thing. And second, what I'd like to do with this survey of Scripture, I hope, is to inspire you to go deeper into your own Bible. The more you read this book, the more you study it, the more you learn about it, to me, anyways, the more compelling it becomes and the more I just see that it, it really does make the world make sense in, in our life and the things we see happening around us. And so I guess I hope today that we can, we can point that out to you. So if I can shift gears for a minute, I just want to ask you a question, something to think about. So we've had a lot of baptisms up here lately. Why, when we baptize people, does Dave not just hold them under the water for two, three minutes? I mean, they're up here saying that their, their soul is right with God, right? Like, let's just hold them under, send them up. Like, right? I mean, it, life's hard. It's, it's, walking by faith is difficult. So 
just skip it. I mean, you ever think about that? Besides the point that he'd go to jail, the reason that people are raised to new life in Christ is so that they can be on mission with him. Not because he needs us, but because he wants us to walk alongside him. It's like a father teaching his son to mow the lawn or a mother teaching her daughter to cook a meal. Like if I take William out and we go mow the lawn, I can do it way faster by myself. I can go start the mower and be done in 30 minutes. If I take him out, I got to show him how to do the straight lines. I got to show him how to pull start the thing. It's, it's much easier to do it by myself. And it would be much easier for God to accomplish his purposes without us. But he has purpose in that. <clears throat> and there's purpose and meaning for us in the struggle. And so I had this whole introduction planned where I was going to tell you about this hyperbolic week where everything's going great and relationships are easy and, you know, we're studying the Bible and we're praying and just pretty unrealistic, really. And then I was going to tell you about my typical week where things rarely go to plan and relationships are difficult and frustrating and I'm not nearly as missional and intentional and whatever as I would like to be, but I kind of just scrapped it a few days ago because I'm like, I don't need to belabor the point that life's hard. I think everybody knows that. You're all living it as well. But what... What we need is we need God walking with us through the daily chaos. We need to know how to walk with wisdom and grace through any and every situation that the world's going to throw at us. We need the gospel to penetrate those frustrating relationships and situations that we all face every day. But for those things to happen, first we have to know it. We have to know this book. We have to know the story that God wrote in it. And not just these little disjointed Sunday school stories and, and little you know, moral teachings, but, but the big story, the story that we're all living in, the story from Genesis to Revelation of what God is doing, how he's doing it, why he's doing it, and how we fit into that. And so I hope and pray that you've sensed over the last few months a fresh sense of momentum around here. I think we as the elder team have certainly felt that, and what we've been trying to do is to look and see what God's doing and where he's moving and then to figure out how we as a church walk in that. And so we feel strongly that this time in history um, is difficult, right? We live in a, a nation that's post-Christian, and it's just looking for people of faith to, to chew up and spit out. And if we don't know this book and how to apply it, then I think we're in big trouble. We're going to get caught in the ever-changing tides of culture. Our children are going to get swallowed up by secularism. And don't get me wrong, we can kind of shelter in place here in Eureka. We're, we're pretty isolated from this stuff in a lot of ways, but it's coming, and in so many ways it's already here, even if we don't want to admit that. And so we need to be ready with a firm foundation. So what is the gospel? <clears throat> is it just the four spiritual laws pamphlet or the Roman, Romans Road or some other pamphlet that somebody gave you once? I think if that's all it is, if, if we're going to stop there, then, then we're in trouble. Don't get me wrong. Those are certainly the gospel. Those are certainly enough to bring about salvation and saving faith. But if we stop at just that and we don't fill out the rest of the story, if we don't increase the size and the strength of that foundation, we're going to struggle. The whole of Scripture, this whole huge book in front of me that's summarized in those resources through all 66 books, the various genres, all these characters are all part of one big story. And God's writing this epic novel. So what is that story? If you took part 
in Dave's Living 3D class over the last semester, one way that, that he talked about this um, is a resource called the Story Formed Way. So he had these symbols. If you don't know anything about this, it doesn't matter. It's not going to change anything I say. But I just kind of framed it with that because people who are part of it could follow along and, and, and might appreciate that. So this Story Formed Way breaks up all of Scripture into about six acts. So the first act is creation. So in the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. He proceeds to create everything we know. He engineers to perfection the solar system, land and water ecosystems, plant and animal kingdoms, and finally he makes man in his image. And so we're going to pick up the story there in Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over everything, every living thing that moves on the earth. And after creating all these things, we know that he said they're very good, and he rested. So what do we learn here? What, what does this tell us about God? I think first it tells us God is the source of everything, right? He creates everything from nothing. In Colossians 1.17, it says, He was before all things, and by him all things are held together. So he makes everything out of nothing, therefore he is the source. When you make something, you're the owner of it, right? You have authority over it. You get to determine its purpose and function. And that's exactly what we read here that God does. He gives purpose and function to the plants, to the animals, and ultimately to the people in the passage. So specifically, he tells us as people that we are to reproduce, to subdue the earth, and to have dominion over the rest of the creation. So we are to be his managers. We're to steward the creation that he's blessed us with, to fill the earth with little images of him, little worshipers of him. So the question is, does that happen? Well, the second act is rebellion, and we all know that does not happen, right? Satan appears on the scene, and we have this good and evil dynamic introduced, a fight for the allegiance of humanity. God has an enemy who is trying to disrupt his good creation. And we learn that Satan is a liar, but not, not blatantly, not obviously. He's just planting these little seeds of doubt. He's bringing into question the things that God says or his motives and placing certain stipulations on his creation. He's cunning and he's twisting the truth and it's hard to recognize at times. And we know that Adam and Eve fall, fall to this and that they disobey God, that they're punished for their disobedience and their lives become mortal. No longer are they going to walk freely with God. No longer will it be easy to subdue the earth and exercise dominion over the earth. They're separated from God, but they're not without hope. So we read in Genesis 3, um, there's a series of curses on the people, but then this, this actually comes from the curse to Satan. In Genesis 3.25, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And so in the extended passage, we learn that life's going to be hard, right? Like, it's not going to be easy to exercise dominion. Their creation is working against us now. Marriage and family are going to be hard. Relationships are going to be difficult. And as we see here, Satan is going to be our continual adversary. But in the midst of all this, 
we have this promised serpent head crusher that's going to come from the offspring of the first people. But apparently this isn't coming soon because we see played out over the next few chapters of Genesis the evil of humanity apart from God. You see murder between the brothers Cain and Abel. And we read in Genesis 6-5 that the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So he sends judgment, right, in the form of a flood. Most people know this story. And in that, he, he is judging the wickedness of man, and, and <clears throat> but he's saving a remnant of creation in the family of Noah and also the animals of the ark. And in Genesis 9-1, they get off the ark, and God says to Noah, almost the exact same command that he had just given to Adam, I don't know just, I don't know how long it was, but recently given to Adam, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Noah's old at this time. He might have been hard of hearing. I don't know. But in Genesis 11, not long after, it seems, we read this. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitten them for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. You ever have one of those moments where you tell your kid not to do something, and then they just look you dead in the eye and do it anyways? I mean, mm. <laughs> I think this is one of those moments, you know? So what is God going to do? Well, we know the story. It's, this, it's the Tower of Babel. He comes down and he confuses their language. And we read that the Lord disperses them over the face of the earth. You guys don't want to spread out? You want to group up and build a city for yourself? Fine. I can, I can spread you out. And I think what we got to recognize here is God's going to accomplish what he wants. He's going to accomplish his purposes. And it's probably better for us and easier for us if we would, would get on board with that. But this is kind of the introduction of the story. And so we're left with this, like, okay, he seems like he's going to accomplish his purposes, but how? And are people ever going to get on board with it? And so the third act in the story is the promise. And in the next chapter of Genesis, we zoom into a man named Abram, pagan guy, living in Ur, and we read this, Genesis 12, 1 to 3. And this is what um, we read at the beginning. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So this is crazy. God just chooses this random pagan guy and then proceeds to bless him. And again, I think we learn a few things here. First of all, God's going to choose people not because of them or who they are or what they bring, but he's going to choose them because it's his sovereign choice. And second, we see that he blesses them, in this case, with land, offspring, reputation. But don't miss the next part. He's not blessing Abraham for Abraham. He's blessing him for all the families of the earth. And finally, we learn that God is about all the families of the earth. And the word here is ethne in the original language, which is where we get our word ethnic or ethnic groups. And it's translated also in the Bible as tongues, tribes, nations, peoples, 
all kinds of things, right? And so what does Abram, Abram do? Well, in Genesis 12, 4, it says, Abram went as the Lord told him. Just radical obedience. He just picked up and went. And again, I think probably something we can learn from that. So the whole rest of the Old Testament is about this family of Abraham, which is what God renames him after this, right? In Genesis 26, 4, God repeats this promise to Abraham's son Isaac. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heavens and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Then again to Isaac's son Jacob, who he soon renames Israel. In Genesis 35, 11, and 12, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. And the land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. And so then we follow these 12 sons of, <coughs> of Jacob, now Israel. They become the 12 tribes of Israel. As Joseph is sold into slavery, right? He ends up in Egypt. He's working for Pharaoh. And then there's a famine in the land. So the rest of his family, the other 11 bro brothers and all their people, come to Egypt, and there's 70 of them in total. They begin to multiply. They're having success. And so what does Pharaoh do? He enslaves them to try to keep them down. And then we see Moses rise up, right? And God miraculously delivers the people with all these plagues. He just annihilates Pharaoh and, and all the strength that he thinks he has. Then he delivers the people through the waters of the Red Sea as he parts the waters. And the greatest army on earth at that time, the Egyptian army, follows them into the sea. God just crushes them with the waters, right? And we read at that time, as they come through the water, that there are now 600,000 men, plus women and children. So easily we now have over a million people. So at least they're taking the be fruitful part seriously. But they cross the Red Sea, and then, you know, God's giving Moses the Ten Commandments. They build a golden calf. They turn to idol worship so quickly. After just seeing him part the waters of the Red Sea, defeat the greatest nation on earth, they turn back to these idols. And so they're punished, and they spend 40 years wandering through the desert. But during that time, God gives them the law. He gives them uh, the tabernacle. He prescribes all these things. And so Leviticus and Deuteronomy like, are two books that most people don't just kind of run to uh, because they're so cloaked, I guess, in this kind of cultural stuff that you've got to wade through and figure out. But they are just a wealth of wisdom in talking about how we are as men and women and people in general, and how, how God is towards us, and just how he intended for us to live. And so we're not going to spend a lot of time there, but I just want to encourage you, all these books are just full of, of good wisdom and good things that, that we can feed on. Anyways, then, as they come out of the promised land, after a generation dies, and, and Joshua begins to lead them into the promised land, out of the, the wilderness, I mean, uh, we read of these great military conquests that God starts giving them. They're driving out these pagan, idol-worshiping nations ahead of them as a visible display of God's judgment on people living apart from him. But some individuals, and some of these nations even, have already heard of God, and they're trembling. We read in Joshua 2, 9 through 11, as the spies come into to Jericho, and kind of they're trying to figure out what's going on, and they meet Rahab. She says this in Joshua, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, 
and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is with you. <clears throat> he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. So the fame of the Lord is spreading, right? With his people as they go, it's spreading. They're blessed to be a blessing. And as the people begin to settle in the land, God establishes them there, and they want a king like the, the nations around them. And this is doomed from the beginning because God was always intended to be their king. But at their best, some of these kings are a picture or a faint shadow of the ultimate king to come. And, and most of the time, or at their worst, they remind us of the fallenness of man and his insufficiency to rule over himself. But regardless, the kingship of David sets up uh, a formal nation and a capital in Jerusalem. He writes numerous psalms alluding to the reputation of God and his people among the nations. And one example of this is Psalm 22, 27, and 28, where he writes, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nation shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. And then David's son, Solomon, right? We all know him and his wisdom and the Proverbs and all the things that he did. He also built the temple, which is one of the great uh, wonders of the ancient world. His fame also is spreading. The Queen of Sheba comes from, uh, from Africa <clears throat> to visit as she's heard of the wisdom of Solomon and of his God. And in 1 Kings 10, 6-9, she says to Solomon, the report was true that I have heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom. But I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes have seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Happy are your men, happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear of your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. So again, the kings and the nation itself are a witness to the nations around them. They're blessed to be a blessing. God gave Solomon wisdom, not just for Solomon. He gave him wisdom to be a blessing to the earth. He gave them this magnificent temple, not just for Israel, but so that the whole earth would see that. But then we start to see Solomon drift from God, and then we see a whole series of kings, most of them bad, kind of walking away from God, leading the people away from God. And so then the kingdom is divided. There's infighting, right? We have Israel and Judah. And then eventually we see the northern kingdoms <coughs> taken captive by Assyria. And then Babylon comes and takes over Assyria, and they capture the southern kingdom of Judah also. So now we have all God's people in exile. We're reading stories like David in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. And those guys continue to point these foreign kings again back to Yahweh, back to the God of Israel. And we read from the prophets as they call the people back to God and their attempts to, to reestablish the kingdom and rebuild the walls of, of Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. But things are never going to be the same. And so at the close of the Old Testament and then in the 400 years of silence between the Old and New Testaments, we're left wondering, what happened to God's plan? Like what, What's next? And so then Act 4, thankfully, is redemption. Enter Jesus of Nazareth in the New Testament. He's an Israelite, but from a small backward town 
son of poor working-class parents, born out of wedlock to a virgin, but also of the kingly line of David. Not exactly the character that any of us expected, right? He comes to serve, but not to be served. He shows us what it looks like to truly fulfill the law, to love the widow, the orphan, the sick, the outcast, the foreigner, to live a perfect and sinless life in communion with the Father. He's the only man to live a life worthy of heaven. But then he's killed in the twop in the plot twist of all time. He's not the king we expected. He did not come to deliver Israel from Caesar or to restore the physical kingdom. He's dead, and it seems like it's over. But then he rises again on the third day. He's the second Adam. He's the serpent head crusher. He breaks the curse by beating Satan and overcoming death, and he opens the door back to fellowship with God. In Galatians 3, 13 and 14, it tells us, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, so that in, Je- in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So he's the fulfillment of the promise to make a way for that promise to come to all the families of the earth. <clears throat> but it's still not over. Act 5 is the church. So the church is God's chosen vessel for the gathering of his people and the furthering of his kingdom. She's equipped with a message of grace and hope that can only be found in Christ. She's the bride of Christ built on him as the chief cornerstone. Her doors are open to any and everyone who calls on the name of Jesus. Therefore, she's the most diverse accumulation of people gathered over thousands of years around these timeless truths all over the world. And at Pentecost, God sends his spirit to live in the hearts of the people and to empower mission. Repeated in all four Gospels and in Acts, and actually it sounds like there are at least four or five different occasions, but is some form of the Great Commission. The one in Matthew reads this way, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We're blessed to be a blessing. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. I'm going to put my spirit in you so that you can be a blessing. And then we learn from Acts and the epistles in church history that this ragtag band of poor, uneducated men turned the world upside down. Jesus' disciples spread out all over the world most of them dying a martyr's death for the furtherance of the gospel. Paul's journey is well documented in scripture, right? We can read the epistles, we can kind of read Acts, and we know where Paul went and what he did. Sorry, I just lost my place here. And within 300 years, the Roman Empire is declared Christian. It's the official religion of the Roman Empire. The kingdom is advancing. But then we start to see this troubling pattern emerge. People are hoarding God's blessing and refusing to share it. So once Christianity becomes the official religion of Rome, then it starts to carry sort of a social and political stigma. Roman Christians get comfortable with their wealth and power and influence in the world, and the gospel movement slows, kind of stagnates. So what happens? The barbarian tribes invade and take over most of Western Europe, about half of the Roman Empire, and in the process, take captive people or they resettle there, And so the gospel spreads there. 
you see monastic life to kind of develop. And so we have monks and nuns and monasteries and a lot of good work to the poor, and then that kind of stagnates as well. And so what happens next? Well, then the barbarians come from, or sorry, not the barbarians, the Vikings come from Scandinavia with their boats, and they take over a big chunk of that kingdom. And with them, they take back women and children and, and unknowingly take back the gospel. And so the gospel spreads to Scandinavia. And we just see this happen over and over and over throughout history. And it's being repeated today as we have refugees and international students and all these people, immigrants, moving into Western societies, just descending on Western societies. <clears throat> Sorry. And so if we insist on keeping the blessing instead of sharing it, God's going to move to accomplish his purposes, whether that be by bringing the people who need to hear it to us or hopefully not by forcibly taking us to them. And this is where we live. God's kingdom is an already but not yet phenomenon. We're in right relationship with him. We're already adopted as sons and daughters. We're already having access to his spirit and all the things that come with that. We're already assured of an, assured of an unshakable place in the kingdom. But we struggle with sin in us and the world around us. We still struggle against the curse and brokenness of creation. We're still fighting the urge to hoard the blessing and to disobey the advancing of the kingdom to all the families of the earth. But the good news is there's one last act, and that's the restoration. The restoration of all things is coming. Jesus will come again and defeat Satan once and for all. Satan will be thrown into the lake of fire with all those who do not believe. <clears throat> and God will create a new heaven and a new earth where he will live with his people in undefiled relationship again. <clears throat> and things will be made new and will enjoy creation as he intended at the beginning. And we read in Revelation 7, 9 to 12, it says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So this is the story of God. It's not over. We're living right in the middle of it. We know that he's going to make all things new. We know that the victory's already been won. We know that there will be people from every tongue, tribe, language, nation before the throne. But we live in the here and now. We live in the long days. We struggle with brokenness and sin. We live in a time and place that doesn't want to hear anything about truth or sin or God. But we're not without hope, and, and that's what I want you to take from today, to be encouraged by the story of God, to anchor to it, to teach it to your children, to write it on the doorpost of your heart. The, the story is already written. This was like a 30-minute sprint through the book. I mean, you can spend a lifetime studying this thing. There is so much in there, and you can just fill out that story with more and more and more. And it's such a solid thing to tie your life to. It's not just a few select passages along the way, so don't settle for the little crumbs of 
coming in here on a Sunday and then trying to go out and just face the week, you, you have a feast before you. And we have the privilege of taking part in what he's doing. He's with us in the daily grind. He has purpose in the seemingly trivial, insignificant things that we do a lot of our days. He's refining us and he's using us for his glory. We're blessed to be a blessing. So the worship team can kind of start to make your way up. But today, again, the start of Mission Month. We're here, each one of us is here because somebody was on mission to us or some group of people were on mission to us. The gospel came to you, it came to me, on its way to somebody else. Don't hoard the blessing. Let God's blessing in your life be a blessing to others. The spiritual blessings of the gospel, adoption into his family, and all the things that come with that, as well as the physical blessings of time, talent, treasure. Most of us have so many physical blessings of time, talent, and treasure, we, we spend all of our time just trying to manage the blessings, our retirement accounts, our homes, our kids, our whatever. Like, we don't even leave time for ourselves to share them with others. Don't do that. We aren't here to make a name for ourselves, to build a tower to the heavens, to build our kingdom, to build our name, our reputation. We're blessed to be a blessing, not for our own sake, but for the sake of others. Not because of anything we did, but because of the grace of God in our lives. So let his story frame the way that you understand the world and the people in it. Let the spiritual blessings <clears throat> of the gospel fuel your life. May the love of Christ compel you and us as a church on mission. We're the family of God. We're his servants. We're his missionaries. And so let's live like it this week and, and each week. We'll pray. Father in heaven, you are so good to us. You have blessed us far, far more than we could ask or imagine, far more than we ever deserved. And so regardless of our standing in society, God, we are so much more wealthy than almost anyone else in the world today and throughout history. And more than that, we have the incomparable blessings of the gospel and salvation and your presence in our hearts. So would you help us not to become stagnant as the Romans did? Would you help us not to be comfortable in our wealth and privilege? Help us to be faithful to share the blessing, God. We pray that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor said once, Christians don't tell lies, they just sing them. So when we sing, I'm going to give you everything. Think about what that means, and, and think about that this week as you go forth. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read Psalm 67, the same one that Lauren read earlier. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us, that your ways may be known on the earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Amen.